All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Before we begin to study that passage together this morning, we're going to pray. We're going to call upon the faithfulness of God. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment. And Lord, we desire to magnify your great faithfulness. God, thank you for your faithful presence in the midst of your people. And Lord, we proclaim it today that it's better. Lord, there's nowhere better to be in any corner of this created world than in your presence. Lord, we believe it. God, we pray that you would manifest it today, Lord, that you would manifest your glory and your greatness. God, we ask for your help this morning to hear your word rightly, to love what you say, to submit to your truth. Lord, we pray that your truth would conquer lies in our life today. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified and that our souls would be nourished according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to invite you to stand this morning for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to read Deuteronomy chapter 13 together. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he has sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of, uh, one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of, the, of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been Done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square, and burn the city and all its spoil with fire, 
as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. That the Lord may turn from the fierceness of His anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as He swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all of His commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. I want to I start by re- reminding you of this phrase this morning. So church, here it is. Those who start well can drift. I'll say it again. Those who start well, start following God. Those who start well can drift. And unless that's true, then I submit to you that this entire chapter makes no sense. This is a warning to the people of God. This is a warning to those who have started well, that there will be temptations along the way that can set us off course. This chapter reminds us that spiritual distractions abound. And before we know it, we can be way further off course than we ever realized. Those who start well can drift. Moses warns us in Deuteronomy 13 about the danger of being lured away after idols, lured away from faithfulness to God. You started well, you were clinging to the Lord, and then something happened along the way where you began to drift. And he sketches this as enticement to idolatry. Listen to the three scenarios he gives us in this chapter. The temptation is essentially the same in each scenario. Verse 2, let us go after other gods. Verse 6, let us go and serve other gods. Again, verse 13, let us go and serve other gods. And so this is the temptation set before the people of God, that you start serving Yahweh, you begin to serve the Lord, and then somewhere along the way, things begin to be intermingled. And other gods enter the picture. Moses specifically warns us in chapter 13 about these temptations to idolatry coming from certain types of people, from certain types of relationships. Notice the three scenarios. Verse 1, if a prophet does this. Verse 6, scenario number 2. If your brother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace does this. And then in verse 13, Moses says, If certain worthless fellows do this. In all of those scenarios, if you are enticed to idolatry, whether it be from religious leaders or from family members, or from some notorious troublemakers in Israel. Moses is warning the people of God, this is where you're to expect the pressure to compromise is through people, through relationships with certain types of people. And so church, I want to instruct us today, the Word of God is putting us on warning. It's putting us on guard today that we are to stay alert in this world. And lest you think temptation to idolatry is only applicable to ancient Israel, I'll remind you of these words in the New Testament. It comes from the Apostle John to the Church of Jesus Christ. He says this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is a perpetual danger 
for the people of God in every generation. And the ability to distinguish between idolatry and true religion is the line between life and death. It always has been and it always will be, even in our modern world. And so Moses calls us in this chapter to watchfulness, to discernment, not to you know, live this sleepy Christian life in this world, but that you're awake, that you're aware that temptations abound. He's calling us to pay careful attention to how we walk and specifically to the influence that others are having upon our spiritual lives. Moses essentially calls us to three things in this chapter. And these are your three headings this morning. Number one, take heed. People of God, take heed. And he warns us through these three scenarios. If this type of person, if this type of person, if this type of person, he warns us about temptations to idolatry. Take heed. Number two, he says, don't listen. Don't listen to them. Okay? He exhorts us that when we're tempted, don't compromise with idols. And then number three, he tells us to stop the spread. And you notice that he lays out punishment for idolaters in Israel. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Take heed, don't listen, and stop the spread. Look at verse 1. Moses begins with a warning about being led astray by false prophets. In verses 1 and 2, describe this situation where a prophet in Israel has made some prediction and it actually comes to pass. He predicts something and it happens, just as he said it would happen. Moses calls this in verses 1 and 2, he presents this sign or this wonder to the people of God. And yet, this same prophet seduces the people with lying words about other gods. Yeah, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt, but what about this other God who can, who can do this in your life? What about Baal who can make your crops grow? Yahweh plus theology. Okay, Sign comes to pass and he says, what about these other gods? That's the scenario. Now in the Bible, God speaks to his prophets through visions and dreams. In fact, this is the normative way that God speaks to his prophets in the Old Testament. Listen to Numbers 12. He says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Prophets heard from God through visions and dreams. This is a biblical thing. In Israel, and especially in the Old Testament. Yet, the Bible draws this sharp line of distinction between the true prophets who stand in the presence of God and deliver the word of God and the parade of pretenders, the false prophets. And so the Bible teaches that true, true prophets, they speak the word of God. They give divine revelation they're, they are communicating words from another world. God reveals to them, they speak it to the people. When you hear a true, God, a true prophet speak, you don't hear the words of men. You hear the very words of God. That's the true prophets of God. And yet, you have this other category in Scripture, the category of false prophets. And they don't give divine revelation. They give human speculation. They when they speak, they don't communicate words from another world. They speak out of their own mind. They speak lies to the people of God. The book of the Bible that indicts these false prophets probably more than any other is the book of Jeremiah. I'll read you a few passages here. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another? 
So understand the situation. The indictment is, I have dreamed, I have dreamed, is actually drawing the people away from, the, from faithfulness to the, the true words of God. Again, Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. And so the people of God in every generation are to be made aware, alert to this category of those who claim to speak for God. And yet God says, I didn't send them. They're prophesying lies, but they're doing it in my name. Now, surprisingly, in chapter 13, Moses sketches out this scenario where these false prophets have real power. They make a prediction and it comes true. They present a sign or a wonder uh, to the people of God. This is... This is Actually already happened in the Bible. If you remember back to uh, Exodus chapter 7, Moses is doing signs in Egypt. And at one point in the story, there's these Egyptian magicians that begin to mimic some of the signs that Moses is doing for the people of God. This is dark magic. This is satanic in its origin. And Jesus actually warned us about this same reality of false prophets with real power. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 13, verse 22. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so if your theology is, I just believe whoever does signs and wonders, then look how vulnerable you are. Look how vulnerable you are. We're we're warned in Old Testament and New Testament uh, of this scenario of false prophets with real power. And friends, I want you to know this about yourself. okay? Not just about your neighbor, but about yourself. Our depravity leaves us vulnerable to these prophetic pretenders. Let me explain. Our fallen nature desires two things. Number one, our fallen nature desires to know the unknown, to know the mysterious things, to pry into the hidden things. This is why cults have been around for thousands of years. They prey off this instinct and fallen human nature to pry into the hidden, to know the mysteries, to know what hasn't been revealed, to speculate what, about what is unknown. In our fallen nature, we, we desire to scratch that itch. You need to know about that about yourself. Number two, we have a desire to be driven by what we can see, hear, taste, and touch. You need to know that about yourself. You need to know that God calls his people to walk by faith and not by sight in this world, and that our flesh says, no, thank you, I'd like to see it, I would like to taste it, and I would like to touch it, and then I'll know it's real. And so we have these two impulses in our fallen nature. And isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul indicts the whole unbelieving world for exactly these two things. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. And so we need to know that about ourselves. This is part of the reason why Christians, especially mature Christians, we learn, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my, my fallen nature. I trust in the Holy Spirit and in the Word of God. Why? Because there is this impulse within us to go beyond what God has said. 
God says this, and I want to pry into the hidden things. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to who? The Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to who? Belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's the two categories set before us, the secret things and the revealed things. And we have that impulse that says, okay, got the revealed things, but let's pry into the secret things. And not only that, we desire some external confirmation to know that the word of God is really true. I mean, just think about that. Just think about all the ways that that plays out. That's the whole theme of sign-seeking in the New Testament. Jesus, if what you're saying is really true, show us a sign. And Jesus says, that's an adulterous generation that treats God and his word like that. Sign-seekers. Now, this chapter reminds us that these tendencies to go beyond what is revealed and to see signs to confirm the word of God, that needs to be crucified in the people of God. That needs to be put to death in us. That, that fallen instinct, we need to crucify it. And this chapter puts us on guard. We are to judge the words of every so-called prophet by the prior word of God. And so there's this principle in Scripture that the prior word that God has spoken takes precedent over whatever the words that the supposed prophet is speaking. I mean, think about that. The Bible teaches something, it's a concept called progressive revelation. That as the Bible unfolds, we know more, things become clearer, God says more about all kinds of different things. That's progressive revelation. But the Bible never teaches contradictory revelation. The Bible never teaches that a word from God later on in time or in the New Testament will contradict a word of God, uh, a prior word from God, even an Old Testament word from God. And so you see this principle in the Bible that the people of God always, Old Testament and New, we test supposed words by the prior word. The scriptures. This is why God has given his people the scriptures. Is we test by the written word of God. I want you to think about this. Even We don't live in a time period. Maybe you need this reminder. We don't live in a time period where books of the Bible are still being added. Okay, Revelation. A new Christian reads Revelation. They're not looking for anything next but the return of Christ. The canon is complete. It's closed. No other books are coming. We have the new covenant written in words. Once for all delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3. It's done. It's finished. But even in the time period. When books of the Bible were still being written. The people of God had to judge these prophets by the prior word from God. And one of the things, just to encourage you with, what can we learn from that? Well, one of the things we can learn from that is that the people of God have always been a people of the book. Always. Even when you had prophets writing books of the New Testament, the people of God were to judge them by what was written before. By the prior word of God. Now, in certain charismatic circles, it is exactly the opposite posture. Okay, It is exactly opposite than what we just said. The emphasis in certain circles is placed on, upon what God supposedly whispered to a leader in his prayer closet. Instead of what God said to a thousand generations in Holy Scripture. How many times have you seen this? Something is wrong when more of your attention is grabbed by somebody saying, Man, I've, I've had a prophetic dream and I would like to share this with you. Or your attention is gripped and grabbed by somebody saying, man, I have a word from the Lord that's just for you. And then when your Baptist preacher stands up and says, everybody turn to Genesis chapter 3 and it's a snooze fest. 
all across the room. Friends, something is wrong with that balance. It's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Any so-called words from God are to be judged by the prior certain infallible words of God, the written words in Holy Scripture. And if that's off in your life, think of how vulnerable you are. Think of how vulnerable you are to just the exact situation that Moses sketches out here, being led astray by these prophetic figures. In verse 3, Moses says that these religious temptations are actually meant by God to test whether we really love him or not. Think about that this morning. In other words, this scenario, number one in chapter 13, this scenario, it means that if all it takes in your life If all it takes is having this one religious experience, if all it takes is seeing spiritual fireworks, if that's all it takes for you to walk away from what God has taught you in his word, Moses says that means you don't really love God. Your love for God was tested and it was revealed that you don't really love him. In fact, you'll walk away from what God says in his word through what you can see or, or uh, uh, through, what, through this hidden thing that is supposedly revealed. Yet the opposite is also true. That when we see things with our eyes that contradict what God has taught us in his word, we reject it outright. That's, that's what it means to love God. That's what it means to cling to Yahweh. Even if the false prophet is is doing signs and wonders. And so we are to be on guard. We are to be watchful against those who claim special access to God, special access to knowledge, anointed figures who are ready to give us words from God. We're to be on guard against this stuff. How do we test it? By the word. We test it by the prior word of God. This principle carries over into the New Testament. Think about Galatians chapter 1. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that even if an angel from heaven, think about that. Don't just read it. Think about that. Even if an angel from heaven, Paul says, preaches a gospel contrary to the one you received. What does Paul say? Let him be anathema. I want you to imagine that this morning, that a supernatural created being reveals himself to us and begins to announce another gospel. Deuteronomy chapter 13 wants you so on guard... And so ready to be loyal to Yahweh, not only do you not listen to what that angel says to you, but you pronounce the damnation of God upon a heavenly created being that has departed from the truths of Jesus Christ. That's how ready we're supposed to be. Not not to be seduced. Not to be led astray. Nothing can pull me away from this book. That's the readiness that Moses is trying to prepare in the people of God. Verse 6, Moses warns us about family temptations. Whether it comes from a brother or a child or a spouse or a close friend. And notice about this scenario, it's secret whereas the other was more open and public. You're being secretly tempted through these close relationships. Moses pictures a scenario where those who are closer to us than anybody in this world secretly tempt us to idolatry. What are you going to do? This is again a test of whether we truly love God. The implication here is that your loyalties are being tested. In other words, if you love two things and those two things begin to contradict each other, you're, you're about to be tested, and you're going to show where your supreme loyalty lies. 
That's the idea here. The supremacy of Yahweh is going to be shown through how they respond to these tests, these, these scenarios. Jesus warns us of this exact same thing about loyalty to family trumping loyalty to God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now friends, there's nothing easy about those words. Those are hard words from Jesus Christ, but they're true. Those are true words. If we have any other loves that trump our love for Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you are not worthy of me. There's this principle of lordship. Unless Jesus is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. That's what Lord means, is he's the, the sovereign one, the supreme one in our life. So we can't get caught up in this mushy mouth middle ground where we call Jesus Lord, you're the master, you're the sovereign, and then we live like other things have more of our allegiance. That's what's being tested here. I've seen Christians change their views on biblical sexuality because one of their children grew up and came out as gay, proclaimed to be a homosexual. And for that parent, their whole Christian life, they believe, man, this is sin. This is unfaithfulness to God. And then all, their, all their sudden, just because their kids are embracing it and doing it, they compromise, say, oh, it's not sin anymore. They're, I've been enlightened with this other way of reading the Bible. That's the exact kind of thing Moses is warning us about here. Of being compromised through the ones that we love. Our loyalty being tested. If that line were to be drawn in the sand, people of God, whose side are you on? I mean, God forbid that you ever have to pick, right? I mean, what we're praying for is husband, love wife, husband loves Jesus, wife loves Jesus. What we're praying for is parents love Jesus, children love Jesus. What we're praying for is uh, uh, I love Jesus, my best friend loves Jesus. Okay, But what if the line is drawn in the sand? What if circumstance you're placed in circumstances where you have to pick whose side am I on here? And Moses is reminding us that's a decision between worshiping idols and worshiping the one true God. Jesus says... Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. We see the same temptation in scenario number three. In verse 13, Moses warns about certain worthless fellows. And that's a translation of the Hebrew phrase that, that literally reads, the sons of Belial. If the sons of Belial, these are the notorious troublemakers in Israel, and that phrase is translated several times in the Torah as the rabble. Remember that? The rabble caused trouble in Egypt. The rabble caused trouble in the wilderness. Here they are again, being warned about the rabble. In 2 Corinthians 6, this, this word Belial is used as a stand-in for Satan himself. What fellowship has light with darkness or Christ with Belial is, is, is the scenario is, is these satanically inspired men. Men who have sold themselves to do the work of the devil. These men are said to lead whole cities into apostasy in Israel. And we have an example of this in the book of Judges, chapter 19 and chapter 20. This same phrase shows up again. Judges 19, verse 22. The rabble caused problems in this city, Gibeah, and the whole city apostatizes. And Israel is forced to do exactly what Moses lays out in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. And so, friends, we have to be warned about those notorious sinners 
And what I mean by that is those who have full sales sold themselves to do the work of the devil. Being in relationship with people like that is not this neutral thing, okay? Not this neutral thing. There's a real danger there for the people of God. I want you to notice that in in these temptations, Moses tells the people of God, don't do it. And that's a necessary step. It's one thing, you know, uh, for a football team to study plays uh, and to prepare for the enemy, to prepare for the game, okay? But it's, but it's another thing that when that actually happens of what you prepare for, you got to stand. you got to refuse this stuff. That's an active choice that the people of God make. So don't just be informed, okay? Stand in the evil day. And he says it this way. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Think about how much God would be glorified in Israel. If a false prophet stood up, started doing signs and wonders, and a faithful man or a faithful woman of God plugged their ears and walked out of that room, praying to God, asking God to, to, to keep them faithful, to help them cling to Him, God is glorified. Against everything that they can see, they're clinging to what God has said in his word. So verse 3, he says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. He says the same thing in that family relationship or that friendship. In verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And so we need to be exhorted in this way as the people of God. We have to say no to temptation. Don't just prepare for it to come. When it comes, say no. Take a stand. The Bible calls us to resist temptation. To flee temptation. To refuse temptation. To be faithful to God. In those moments we cling to Him. Not seduced by the idols. He describes it in verse 4 in these words. What shall you do when you're tempted? He says this. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. So when you're tempted, don't listen. Serve God. That's an opportunity for loyalty to be shown to the Lord your God. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified in our life. You have option number one, and God, and you say, God is better. I'm tempted with this thing, but God is better. We see this reminder again, and this has happened several times in the book of Deuteronomy, and you see it with God's name twice in chapter 13 but I want to give it to you again and so here's the principle the people of God remain faithful to God by remembering and believing God was faithful to us first this is not that there's secrets to sanctification but this is a key principle in our sanctification We remain faithful to God by remembering that God was faithful to us first. And so twice in this chapter, God's name is proclaimed in language of the Exodus. Look at verse 5. The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Who is God? He's that God. He's the God who brought you out. He's the God of redemption. Again, verse 10. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. This is who our God is. If you were to say it in the language of this chapter. Who is God? He's the God that brought us out. That's who my God is. He's the God that brought us out. He's the God that redeemed us. And here's the good news for us as the people of God. Because God brought us out, premise, implication, we don't have to go there anymore. If God brought me out of Egypt, 
I don't have to go back to Egypt. God brought me out of Egypt. And so all of a sudden, this wonderful reality happens in the Christian life. That the things that we were unable to resist and say no to our whole life, all of a sudden we have the power of grace at work in our life and we can refuse the things that we were once enslaved to. This wonderful power and ability that when we're tempted to say no, I'm not going to listen to that. Not going back to Egypt because I don't have to go back to Egypt. Just as Israel was slaves in Egypt and redeemed by the Passover lamb, Christians were once slaves of sin, and yet we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to think about ourselves in that way. Who are Christians? We are the redeemed of the Lord. We are the ones who were brought out of slavery. That's who we are. And this is who non-Christians can become. Through repentance and faith in Christ, you can become the redeemed of the Lord, the ones who God brought out of slavery to sin. And what that means for us in the midst of the battle is that nothing that sin or idolatry will ever offer us is better than what God has already done for us in and through Jesus Christ. So you have this principle here. Jesus is better. Redemption is better. Exodus is better than all of these things. God has already brought me out. Why would I ever go back? We're supposed to remember it. We're supposed to believe it. We're supposed to take our stand in grace You need to learn this as a Christian. These are the weapons that we bring to fight temptation as we bring the gospel to bear on temptation. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but this this may be a pearl phrase, but we grow up here and don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You ever heard that? Just super redneck phrase, okay? Don't bring a knife to a gunfight, meaning do not bring inferior weapons to a conflict that requires superior weapons. And that principle is true in our our Christian life. We bring the weapons of grace. We bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon our temptation to sin. So when idolatry says, come over this way, we have to learn to say, Jesus is better. No thanks, Jesus is better. Not interested in a downgrade here. Jesus is better. We have to learn to fight with the very name of God. Excuse me, maybe you don't understand, but my God is the God who brings me out of Egypt. Don't have to go back there anymore. I've been redeemed. It's that posture that realizes where you come from, where God has brought you, that posture that says, Jesus Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Every direction, every other direction I would turn would be a downgrade. You have the words of eternal life. And so church, we have to think about ourselves in these terms, these Exodus terms. We have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, which means when we're tempted, we're not our own. We're not our own. Jesus has purchased us. We belong to him. We belong to him. We are God's treasured possession in this world. And as Christians who bear the name of Christ, we got no business in Egypt anymore. Been brought out of there. A Christian serving idols is like a billionaire living in the slums. Downgrade of downgrade. Why? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Lastly, I want you to notice that Moses calls for a punishment for idolatry. And you see this in all three scenarios. Verse 5, that prophet shall be put to death. Verse 9, the family member or the friend, you shall kill him. Verse 15, the notorious 
sinners. Verse 15, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. And so the penalty for idolatry in each scenario is capital punishment. Idolaters were to be put to death in Israel. This is God's law. And that penalty reminds us about the nature of the crime. God's law is just. They didn't commit some little crime and, and God prescribed some you know, heavy-handed uh, penalty for some little crime. No, the punishment is just and it shows us something about the nature of their crime. Idolatry is not a little deal. Idolatry is a big deal. In fact, in Israel, idolatry is synonymous with treason. Treason against God. In other words, when it came to being tempted by idols, the continuing existence of the whole nation was at stake. I mean, think about it. If idolatry took root in Israel, it threatened the very thing that made Israel Israel. It's the, it's the very thing that distinguished them of all the other peoples of the earth. That's what's at stake. So in verse 5, capital punishment is described with this phrase, purging evil from the midst of Israel. That phrase shows us that some positive action was required to be faithful to God. It wasn't enough just to be aware you're being tempted. Don't listen to that temptation. They had to take positive action to ensure that the nation was not further provoked to idolatry in these three scenarios. Again, this shows us how serious idolatry is, how deadly idolatry is, if left unchecked, it would ultimately bring the curse of Yahweh, the covenant curse of Yahweh on the nation, and the nation is no more. And so the question regarding the penalty for idolatry is not so much should someone die for committing this sin. That's not really the question. The question is who should die? Should the idolater die for committing this sin, or should the whole nation die if this sin is left unchecked and so this was a, a just punishment and it served to keep Israel distinct from all the nations false prophets were to be put to death why verse 5 because they taught rebellion against the Lord they taught treason against the Lord no exceptions were made for family members who committed apostasy why because of verse 10 because they sought to draw you away from the Lord. They committed treason in Israel. Entire cities were to be devoted to destruction. Notice that's that same word that we've encountered several times in Deuteronomy, harem. It's the punishment that was to be uh, dealt out to Israel's enemies, the Canaanites. And yet here... Israel is treated with the same penalty that the Canaanites are treated because apostasy basically turns Israel into Canaanites. They lost the thing that distinguished them from the nations. And C.S. Lewis is right here. He says this. He reminds us, if we no longer feel comfortable with such language, it is not because of our superior moral sensitivity. It's not because we've evolved and have superior ethics. He, he says this, but rather because of our moral apathy. And I think he's exactly right there. We think too little of idolatry because we think too little of God's glory. This penalty, this capital punishment that we see in chapter 13 is one of the clearest places in the law of Moses that reminds us that we are no longer under this covenant. Okay? How can you see that? One of the places where you see that is where this capital punishment uh, comes up. This exact phrase, purge the evil from among you, is quoted in the New Testament. and It's the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and something interesting happens. Okay? The Apostle Paul quotes this same text, and instead of applying it uh, to idolaters receiving capital punishment... 
The Apostle Paul quotes this text in the context of an unrepentant Christian committing sexual immorality in the church that is excluded from the church by church discipline. And so as we change covenants, we see our covenant duties toward idolatry change. We still address it. We are still responsible to purge the evil from among us. But the church doesn't do this with the sword. The church of Jesus does this with the keys of the kingdom. By the power of the word and spirit, we are to exclude those who claim to follow Jesus and yet live in unrepentant sin. And so the way we keep the principles that are laid out for us in Deuteronomy 13 is to faithfully administer church discipline as the people of God. And we are never to do this lightly. Look at verse 14. We do this according to verse 14. He's, Moses says this, You shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, In other words, there's this principle that when this punishment is applied, you better get it right. This is a place, church discipline is a call to careful, righteous, objective investigation. It's no place for trumped up charges, mob justice, our personal vendettas being carried out in the church of, oh, I don't like this so-and-so, so we'll ring them up on church discipline. No, careful investigation. Careful inquiry. But to be faithful to God, the church must act decisively to purge the evil from among you. It's a matter of faithfulness to Yahweh, faithfulness to God. And so one of the things that we learn is that the church of Jesus Christ, it is a place for sinners. This room would be empty if the church of Jesus weren't a place for sinners. The church is a place for sinners. But it's a place for sinners who are repenting of their sins. God's people must be holy. And we lose everything that makes us distinct if we lose our holiness. It's that which makes the church the church. And so church, we need to be the kind of Christians who hunger for personal holiness. Who see our personal holiness as a a key ingredient of our faithfulness to God, our loyalty to God. And may God help us stand, every single one of us, in the evil day when we are tempted to be drawn away from the Lord our God. Let's pray together this morning and let's ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we do. We ask for help. We pray that you would cause your word to be fruitful in our life. Cause your word to be fruitful in our church. Lord, we ask that you would awaken us, Lord. That you would grant us a stronger measure of alertness and watchfulness. Lord, make us those hungry ones who desire to please you in all of life. Who turn away from even the smallest of compromises. And Lord, we ask you, by grace, we pray, keep us, Lord Jesus. Keep us faithful to the very end. Preserve us to the final day. In your name we pray. Amen.